This evening I'd like to talk about letting go. The, the art of living with a liberated heart is the art of being able to let go. Every moment in our lives and every moment in our meditation when we experience tension and conflict and resistance, those moments tell us something about our need to be able to let go. Every moment in our lives and in our meditation, when we experience openness, spaciousness, connectedness, those moments tell us of the freedom that we have found and the joy that we have found in being able to let go. The most painful moments in our lives when we find ourselves burdened by alienation or burdened by disconnection, those experiences speak to us of the ways that we may be holding and the times and the experiences of joy and compassion and love, those experiences tell us their own story about our capacity to open and to let go. In so many ways, our whole life experience teaches us just one simple lesson, that holding on to things, that grasping and clinging, creates pain and brings contraction. And that being able to open and being able to let go brings us happiness, it brings us harmony, it brings us peace. I doubt if there, was, if there is one single area of our lives where we do not find ourselves moving more freely, experiencing greater sense of freedom, by being able to let go. And I doubt if there's one area of our lives that we won't find ourselves more separate, more disconnected, more divided, if we hold, if we find ourselves grasping. We're taught our life experience, our stories, our past, our present. It teaches us this lesson again and again and again. And intellectually, Clearly, we acknowledge the relationship between grasping and pain. And in our hearts, we find ourselves often yearning for the freedom that we know is found in being able to let go and to open. And yet this lesson that our life teaches us is one of the hardest lessons for us to apply. We often have fairly mixed feelings, to say the least, about renunciation. And those mixed feelings often also make us somewhat reluctant to practice letting go in our lives, to actually apply it. Sometimes we have a number of associations with renunciation. We have these ideas that a renunciate is some kind of ascetic who lives in a cave feeding off scraps and dressed in rags, who's essentially 
turned away from the world and, and separated themselves from the world as we know it. And we may admire that renunciate or admire the ascetic as a kind of ideal, yet we don't always feel so tempted to follow in their footsteps. There's a few caves available back here in the woods if anybody is tempted. But even if we find ourselves somewhat questioning the life of the renunciate as we may see it, it's hard for us to deny in our hearts the spirit of that being able just to let go of everything. Sometimes it's also hard for us to deny the actuality that being able to let go in our own lives may well bring us a great deal more freedom and liberation. It's clearly hard for us to deny that renunciation and being able to let go is always going to play a vital part in our own personal world and our relationship to it. If we wish to discover freedom, to discover what it means to be awake. It's not always easy for us to see renunciation as being something liberating. Our gut reaction to the very word may be something very different. We may equate renunciation with some kind of deprivation and so look upon it even with some dread or some fear. We may think, what are we going to lose? Are we going to lose something we really need by practicing letting go in our lives? We may ask ourselves, what is renunciation going to cost us? It's not necessarily that we loss, uh, that we dread the loss, you know, of, uh, you know, our new ski boots, you know, or that we dread the loss of our zafu, or that that any of the the loss of those possessions fills us with fear. More often, what fills us with with fear and anxiety is the the prospect of losing the intangible reassurance the intangible security and safety that we find in the things that we find ourselves able to call mine. And letting go, then, the fear of it is in fearing a loss of security, of pleasure, of identity, and that fundamental fear of losing me, of losing myself as I know myself, makes us reluctant, at times really unable to let go of things in our life. And as long as we're stuck in that kind of ambivalence, that kind of apprehension about letting go, then letting go is difficult. It's hard for us. We do it perhaps with reluctance. But it's certainly no less difficult for us to live within the boundaries of a world that is defined by fear and by holding. It's clearly no less difficult for us to live within the confines of a world that is defined by me, by mine, and the fear of its loss. It's very important for us to ask ourselves whether it's possible for there to take place inwardly some radical shift in attitude, in approach, but we don't see letting go as punitive, 
as, as sacrificing something, as being deprived of something. But where we can actually see letting go as an act of love, as an act of care, and as an act of compassion, not only for ourselves, but for the world around us. Another way of looking at letting go is to ask ourselves, what is letting go actually going to bring to our lives? What kind of light, what kind of gift, what kind of openness is letting go actually going to bring into our lives? What difference would it make in our lives if we didn't hold on to anything out of the conviction that we needed that thing, that object, that thought, that mind state, that lifestyle, in order to make us happy? What difference would it make in our lives if we knew a place of happiness and contentment within ourselves that didn't need props to sustain it? What would it be like for us to live in a way where we weren't afraid of losing anything, where we knew such a deep level of trust and faith in our own wholeness and our own completeness that doesn't need and didn't need any props, any things to sustain it. What would it be like for us to live without boundaries, just with openness, The story of the Zen master, Ryokan, is a master who lived the simplest kind of life in a little hut in the foot of a mountain. One evening, a thief visited his hut, and he went up on the roof of the hut and opened a hatch and started feeling around in the dark, not knowing that Ryokan was sitting there. He looked up and he saw his hand groping around in the dark and wasn't finding anything. So Ryokan started to give him a hand. He started looking around, you know. What, what, it's a cup and he handed it up a cup and the cup disappeared. You know. It's a plate and he handed up the cup and the plate disappeared. You know, and he looked around. There's a cushion, he handed up the cushion and the blanket and they disappeared. And there wasn't really much left. And so he popped his head up. And he said, you've probably come a long way to visit me. I'd hate you to go away with so little. Why don't you take my clothes? So the thief took the clothes. And Ryokan said, this is a gift. This is a gift for you. And watching the thief slink away in the night, Ryokan sat and thought, poor fellow, if I could only give him this beautiful moonlight. Look at the different dimensions of our lives that would be transformed by being able to let go. What would be transformed in our lives if we weren't holding? We don't usually have to look very far to see where renunciation does apply. We look to need just to look to see what it is at this time in our lives that we really hold on to, that we really grasp on to, that we cling to and identify with. 
Is it the form of our meditation? Is it the style of our meditation? Is it our identity as a person in some role or relationship? Is it the things in our life? Is it mind states we grasp hold of? Where do we see contraction? Where do we see fear? That is only as far as we have to look. Look at our relationship to the world. We are not monastics. We live in a world of objects. And we live in a world where there's the possibility of so many objects. And each one of us is called upon to form a relationship with that world. It can be a relationship which is ecologically balanced and wholesome. It can also be a relationship which is very imbalanced and unskillful. And unfortunately, we do live within a culture that too often just promotes an ecologically imbalanced, disconnected, and unskillful relationship with our world. We do live within a culture where success and security and credibility, and, and credibility as a person is measured by how many things we're able to say are mine, by how many things we're able to say I have. It's all too easy for us to learn to subscribe to that myth and to follow the path of accumulation of unholding, defining ourselves by the things that we have. Also living in fear of their loss. It's a path which undermines our own well-being. It's clearly a path which undermines the well-being of our world. Gandhi once said that there is enough in this world for everyone's needs. That there is not enough in this world for everyone's greed. At times we may have investment, a lot of investment in the things we hold on to. Not just the things, but the things that they represent to us. The power, the security, the control. But to follow the path of accumulation and holding is clearly to follow a path of disconnection in our world and disconnection from ourselves. In a world, a way of seeing of connectedness, there is no greed. It is clear there is no damage to our environment. There is no damage to other people. That damage and that harm is only born, can only be born of disconnectedness. If you think about it, I, I, I do a lot of reflecting in supermarkets because I have to spend a fair amount of time in supermarkets. A regular part of my life is the supermarket. And it seems that you go up and down the aisles of a supermarket and you're presented with this illusion of choice which fosters our sense of control, doesn't it? Doesn't choice foster our sense of control? You go up and down the aisles and you ha seem to have all these choices. Like you have a choice between what is biodegradable, what's non-biodegradable. You have a choice between what's organic or non-organic. You have a choice between what is filled with additives or not filled with additives. We think we have a choice, 
We have that same illusion of choice, of course, in so many areas of our lives. We choice whether we're friendly towards someone or whether we're unfriendly, whether we, we uh, extend loving kindness or whether we extend resentment. We think we have a choice about whether we're going to hold a grudge or let it go. Um, the thousand and one ways that we, we think we have choices, and surely on one level we do have choices. If we were really connected, how many choices are there? If we're truly connected with the well-being of our world as us being part of it, if we're truly able to see another person as just ourselves in a different form, if we truly see ourselves as part of this planet, how many choices do we really have? Then clearly to follow any path, which is not a path of caring, of, of sensitivity, of dignity, of integrity, follow any, any path which is not a path of those is not only a violation of the well-being of our world, it's a violation of our own integrity and our own well-being. We need to ask ourselves, in our relationship to the world, in our relationship to ourselves, are we made any freer? Are we made any happier? by a relationship that's governed by insecurity and by believing in incompleteness and so believing in so much need? Or are we made more fearful and more controlling? What does it mean to live in a wholesome, a balanced relationship with the world and ourselves? It means following a path of connectedness. And that doesn't mean that we have to retire to a cave. It doesn't mean we have to discard everything in our lives. Clearly, it does mean on an individual level that we all need to follow a path of some restraint. It does mean to really acknowledge what is really important, what was really valuable in our lives to us, to the world that we live in. It also means following a path of connectedness. It means exploring just how much do we give. How much do we give in terms of time, in terms of generosity of heart, in terms of energy? Exploring a path of connectedness actually means consciously exploring in our lives what it means not to hold, a willingness to let go. There's a, there's a story of a very famous rabbi in Poland who was really well known wisdom, mystical insight, and people used to go from all over the world to visit him. And one day, someone, a tourist went to visit him, I won't say from where, and arrived in this little Polish village and asked directions to this rabbi's house. And he thought, you know, he was looking for some big house, maybe with a sign, you know, or maybe with devotees outside or something. He couldn't find anything except this little village. And he asked directions, and finally someone took him to this kind of run-down house. And, and, the, and the tourist said, oh, this is the rabbi's house. Oh, no, this is not the rabbi's house. The rabbi has a room in this house. So finally, the tourist knocked at the door and went in. He was finally taken to the rabbi's room and knocked on the door and was asked to come in and found the rabbi in this little bare room, you know, a few books, a little stool, and a mattress. And the visitor said to him, 
Rabbi, you're famous all over the world. Where's all your things? Your books? Your, your, your furniture? Your comfort? And the rabbi said to him, well, where's yours? And the, and, and the tourist said to him, well, of course, I don't have mine with me. I'm just a visitor here. And the rabbi said, so am I. To look a little bit further, to explore a little bit further, this, this whole consciousness of letting go. Where are the areas we hold on to most strongly? One of them that tends to be very preciously, highly treasured, is our idea of personal space and territory. And we learn a lot on retreats about how tightly we hold on to our ideas of personal space and territory. One of the things we often find ourselves, one of the first things we often find ourselves doing when we come on to retreat is we get busy building our invisible walls, one around our sitting place, one around our seating place, one perhaps around our eating place. We have a very strong idea that this personal space is somehow very important to us. It, it, it protects us, and it is mine. You may be reduced to being anonymous yogis here, but you may have a very highly defined sense of your room and your space in which you are in no way anonymous. And a retreat is in so many ways a microcosm of the rest of our lives of how we relate to personal space. The ways that we expect other people to respect our personal space and territory, even if they haven't been informed about it. You know, somebody's blanket creeps over onto our zavatan and it's like a mortal wound. <laughs> Somebody spills their tea near our plate and it's the greatest offense to our dignity we've ever experienced. How do we feel about our roommates? Our personal space often represents to us a great deal of security. We often feel invaded when our expectations around it are not fulfilled. And that level of invasion has so many subtle levels. Your personal silence can be a part of your personal space. How do you feel about the people who cough in the meditation room? How do you feel when your, your, your nearby colleague you know, has an endless fidget. <laughs> How do you feel about the mosquito that buzzes near your ear? How often there's that sense of invasion, my space. My silence is not being respected, it's being invaded. What we're experiencing then is a threat to our personal security and identity. And the moment, of course, that we feel invaded, we create separateness. There is me who is being invaded, and there is the invader. This doesn't just happen on retreats, by the way. Many feelings arise in that moment of separation. Anger, resentment, contraction, 
desires for revenge. It's not, it, we are experiencing when our expectations are disappointed and frustrated that we respond in a way of feeling deeply threatened. We don't have personal space. We are imprisoned by the idea of personal space. Our walls may be built with the idea of keeping others out, but they surely do also keep us in. It's not always happening. Sometimes we find something totally different. We feel incredibly accommodating. You know, we sit and we walk or we move through our lives and things don't conform to our expectations and people disappoint us and, and we end up next to the most restless yogi in the whole universe. And we don't feel invaded. We feel fine. We feel like we have a lot of space and a lot of accommodation. What has changed in that? The difference is not in how much room we have. The difference is not necessarily in how undisturbed we are. The difference is, is how much space we feel within ourselves. And I feel it's true when we feel spacious within ourselves, we find an immense amount of space everywhere. When we feel connected inwardly with our, in a very direct and loving way with our own changing feelings and thoughts and, and, and sensations, we don't feel contracted and we feel the capacity to accommodate so much. We feel an immense amount of space when we're not holding. And we can move with so much freedom in the world, in a crowd, or when we are alone. There is not so much a sense of mine and yours. Rather an opening just to being present. When we don't create a center within ourselves which is separate from everything else and don't try and protect that center, there aren't any walls that can be, can be bridged or violated. There aren't any walls that keep us in. There is no center. And learning how to let go in that way is learning how to be without prejudice. Learning to let go of the idea of I and you, of mine and yours, learning to see how very transparent those boundaries are between inner and outer. The breath that you struggle with, that feels so much like your struggle, where did it go? The thought that you can struggle with, that again seems to cause such contraction, where does it go? What is peace? What is openness? Where does it lie? It doesn't lie in the absence of the challenging. It doesn't lie in the absence of the disturbing. Peace and openness lies in our capacity to be with what is without prejudice. Exploring what it means to consciously extend our boundaries. What did it mean to move in a space that's not defined by mine and yours, by I and you? Learning what it means to move in a way in this world without prejudice and without holding. Seeing that prejudice and judgment are the offspring of closing down and separating. How that letting go, even to the things that are really difficult in our lives and our meditation, opens us and connects us. 
how even opening to pain connects us so deeply. I'd like to read you something from uh, Stephen Levine's work, a hospice. He said, a woman came into the hospital in a very contracted state. The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All that she didn't want or could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so many so often that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks, her isolation and pain increased until one night she came to a point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. At 4 a.m., feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear how her intense holding had created such intense pain. Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a youngster, open and hungry for the world. She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a deep sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her, and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered, let go, and died into her life, into the moment, letting go into the pain in her spine and legs. She began to sense quite beyond reason that she was somehow not alone in her suffering. She felt what she later called the 10,000 in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breast slack from malnutrition, lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast. For an instant, she became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. Then there arose the experience of an Eskimo woman, lying on her side, dying during childbirth, tremendous pain in her back, hips, legs, and dying the same death. Image after image arose. She was each dying beside the others. She experienced the 10,000 suffering simultaneously. The pain was beyond my bearing. I couldn't stand it any longer, and something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it wasn't just my pain. It was the pain. It wasn't just my life. It was all life. It was life itself. As the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to all the others in pain at the hospital. She constantly asked after them. And the room became a place where the nurses would come on their break because it was a room of love. And soon her children came to visit because of the warmth and surrender of her phone calls, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sitting on her bed, the grandchildren she had never met, the heart she had rejected before they were born. For several weeks before her death, her room became a place of healing, of finished business, of universal care. Hazel's was one of the most remarkable healings we have ever seen.
beginning to let go of I and my is beginning to let go of contraction. It's beginning just to open. In that opening, we sense not all, only our experience. We sense all experience held within that experience. We sense not just even this moment. In a way, we sense how all moments are held within this moment and how the only response that truly liberates us is to be able to open, is to be able to let go, to know how to let go of the center and all of the judgments that come from the center. How much complexity and how much separation and how much division is created in our world through the judgments which we have become so accustomed to using and how foreign those judgments really are to ourselves. How foreign disconnection, how alien disconnection truly is to our real nature. Is it how we want to live? Is it possible for us to live in another way? You may know Chang Su's poem about the empty boat. If a man is crossing a river and an empty boat collides with his own skiff, even though he be a bad-tempered man, he will not become very angry. But if he sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, he will shout again and yet again and begin cursing and all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet if the boat were empty, he wouldn't be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat, crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you, and no one will seek to harm you. It is not that we erase I. It is not that we try to contrive generosity or even try to contrive loving-kindness. But how much space is there in reality between us and another person? How much can we see the emptiness of the judgments and the labels that seem to make that separation so solid? So many times we do hear the whisper and sometimes the shout of our judgments interpreting the world and governing our response to it. So many times we hear the voice of the inner critic governing our own response to ourselves. And what kind of response is born of that judge? Do our judgments actually bring us closer to anything or to anyone? Do our judgments and our labels ever lead to a deepening and understanding and openness and connectedness? Or do not our judgments only ever lead to separation and division? And aren't our judgments just born of fear? Aren't our judgments just the holding mind at work? And who suffers? Who suffers? It's not that we have to work out our judgments. It is futile to suppress them. 
Is it possible for us simply to learn the lessons of our judgments? To learn the lessons deeply in our hearts so that we no longer need them. And so that we know in our hearts that the only response that is truly liberating in our world is compassion, is being able to let go. And letting go is not some destination we reach after we've done a lot of other work. Letting go is not some destination we reach after we've worked out our stuff or our difficulties or the various issues we have now in our lives. Letting go is not some place we reach at some future time when we feel we've perfected wisdom and we've managed to make clear what we need to feel we need to make clear to other people and to ourselves in our lives. Letting go is in our relationship only to this moment. Non-dwelling is the great art of the spiritual life. Non-dwelling is the greatest art of the spiritual life. It is a practice of freedom, just as dwelling and holding is a practice of limitation. We may dwell upon many things, upon past, upon future, upon the present, We may find ourselves dwelling upon our thoughts, our feelings, our opinions, our reactions, our judgments. Through that dwelling, we construct a world for ourselves. And we inhabit that world in loneliness because it is a world which is separate and apart from the world of any other being. It is only our world, and it is only our construction. Through dwelling, we become, we learn to believe that that world is reality. Dwelling is that repeated turning of attention to a thought, a feeling, an image, a feeding of it, with feeling, that sense of sticking within the mind and holding and grasping to what arises. Sometimes it's conscious. Sometimes it seems unconscious. We don't need to make a mission out of non-dwelling. We need just to do it. You can't improve at non-dwelling. You can't get better at it. We can only simply apply it in the moment Can we ever lose anything that is fundamentally ours? It's not forcing that allows us to let go. It's not willpower. It's not striving that allows us to let go. Often it's understanding. Why are we holding? This is a question we need to ask ourselves when we find ourselves dwelling. Why are we holding? What are we afraid of losing? Just simply simply to ask ourselves why we are holding. It is enough for understanding. It is enough to be able to let go. And letting go has its own momentum. It is a wonderful gift. It is a wonderful blessing. 
it has its own momentum because the moment you let go of something which imprisons you and limits you, what you experience is a f wonderful and marvelous sense of freedom and opening and spaciousness. You know there's no other place you want to be. And that very openness and spaciousness inspires the very next moment of letting go. The art of non-dwelling begins to come with ease to us without struggle. It's the art of being awake. It's the art of living in the spirit of freedom. Non-dwelling is truly living in the spirit of freedom. And just to end, I would like to read you a poem. It's called The Mind of Absolute Trust. The great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion, and everything will be perfectly clear. When you cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and evil is a primal disease of the mind. Not grasping the deeper meaning, you trouble your mind's serenity. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. But because you select and reject, you can't perceive its true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of things, and all errors will disappear by themselves. If you don't live the Tao, you fall into assertion or denial. Asserting that the world is real, you are blind to its deeper reality. Denying that the world is real, you are blind to the selflessness of all things. The more you think about these matters, the further you are from the truth. Step aside from all thinking, and there is nowhere you can't go. Returning to the root, you find the meaning. Chasing appearances, you lose their source. At the moment of profound insight, you transcend both appearance and emptiness. Don't keep searching for the truth. Just let go of your opinions. For the mind in harmony with the Tao, all selfishness disappears. With not even a trace of self-doubt, you can trust the universe completely. All at once you are free with nothing left to hold on to. All is empty, brilliant, perfect in its own being. In the world of things as they are, there is no self and no non-self. If you want to describe its essence, the best you can say is not to. In this not to, nothing is separate and nothing in the world is excluded. The enlightened of all times and places have entered into this truth. In it there is no gain or loss. One instant is 10,000 years. There is no here, no there. Infinity is right before your eyes. The tiny is as large as the vast when objective boundaries have vanished. The vast is as small as the tiny when you don't have external limits. Being 
is an aspect of non-being. Non-being is no different than being. Until you understand this truth, you won't see anything clearly. One is all. All is one. When you realize this, what reason for holiness or wisdom? The mind of absolute trust is beyond all thought and all striving, is perfectly at peace, for in it there is no yesterday, no today, no tomorrow. We could have just a couple of minutes quietly together. (coughs) 